Hello and welcome to Very British Futures, a podcast about the lesser-known stories produced by UK television over the years. I'm Gareth Preston and today I'm pleased to be joined by Kevin Hiley and Dr Rebecca Ray. Kevin is a video editor and graphic designer who's worked for numerous UK TV channels over the years and when time permits he's an enthusiastic amateur filmmaker for which he has won several awards. Rebecca is a mental health mentor and a lecturer in psychology. Her research interests include gender, feminism and qualitative research methods and like me they're both big fans of science fiction and television. Now imagine that it's 2020 and an impoverished divided Britain suffers under the heels of a totalitarian government. Yes in this edition we're looking back to TVS's 1987 dystopian family adventure series Knights of God. Inevitably, there will be some spoilers ahead. The series has only been shown once in the UK and has never had a UK domestic release. Knights of God was a 13-part series originally shown on ITV Sunday Tea Time in the autumn of 1987. It was created by Richard Cooper after being approached by TVS's controller of programmes, Anna Holm, who was looking for a grittier Sunday tea time drama. Cooper had written the BBC children's tech thriller, codename Icarus, and later on would create the period drama, <clears throat> the period courtroom drama, Shadow of the Noose. The 20-week production was directed by Andrew Morgan and Michael Kerrigan, two busy television directors, with a string of credits both before and after. It starred George Winter and Claire Parker as the young heroes Gervais and Julia, supported by a brace of well-known character actors, including John Woodbine, Patrick Troughton, Gareth Thomas, Don Henderson, Nigel Stock, Frank Middlemass, Michael Sheard and Julian Fellows, years before the latter became internationally famous as the writer of Downton Abbey. In the near future, the UK has been devastated by a civil war which has left London destroyed and the majority of the population living a harsh existence where basic resources such as food and fuel are scarce. The royal family has been executed and the country is now ruled by a religious fascist order called the Knights of God, led by the ruthless and charismatic Prior Mordrin. The Knights control much of the country's remaining technology and weaponry. Nevertheless, a resistance movement has grown up based in Wales and a teenager called Gervais Edwards is unknowingly a key figure in their plans to overthrow the dictatorship. Over the course of the series, Gervais is arrested, blackmailed into joining the Knights and indoctrinated, whilst Julia, his girlfriend in the work camp, escapes and joins the resistance. Reunited, they search for the surviving heir to the throne, a figure for the country to unite behind. Unaware that Gervais has been programmed with a post-hypnotic command to find and kill the leader of the resistance. So, to start off with, I'd like to ask, 
how you first came in contact with the Knights of God, if you'd like to start, Rebecca. Uh, well, it was Kevin who, sh- who showed it to me. Uh, we were watching Blake Seven. It was I was watching it for the first time because um, I was interested in it, seeing it. And Kevin was also showing me. He, he randomly showed me an episode of Knights of God and randomly an episode of Legend of Robin Hood because they had Blake Seven cast members in. And I was interested in watching more Knights of God, but we didn't for some reason. We just left it for quite a while, and then. I said again, I was interested to watch. We kind of binged it all in one go at one point. Yeah, not long ago. Yeah, not long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kevin? Yeah, um, well, I didn't see it at the time, um, which is a shame because I would have loved it if I'd known it, <laughs> if I'd known about it. Um, I mean, I, I grew up hearing about it mostly because of it being Patrick Troughton's last screen appearance, which mm-hmm. that in itself would have been made, would have made me curious, you know, to have a look at it. Um I didn't get a copy of it until I think somewhere in the 2000s. Yeah, as you've mentioned, it wasn't released on video or DVD, which explains again why I never had any other chances to get hold of it. So yes, I, I, I obtained a copy from someone online. I seem to recall. It's ju- it was ju- I said it was just it was just one of those names of classic British sci-fi TV shows that. I was just sort of, I, 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 I like to see the more obscure stuff. So I was just always, you know, just wanting to get my hands on it. Yes, I, I did actually start watching it at the time of the broadcast. I watched the, pretty sure the first two episodes, but it was just as I was about to go off to Polytechnic. And so pretty much I never saw the rest of it but once I uh, left home. So yes, like rather like yourself, it was one of those names that was banded about yes. and uh yeah it was uh, it was something that i was curious to see how it turned out based on the bits that i saw so many years later in the back in the days of tape vhs tape trading and the like i finally got a chance to uh, to see it and catch up and see what whether it lived up to it and uh which is what we're in a way, talking about today, whether it sort of lives up to its promise. What were your kind of sort of general feelings? I'm pleased to have seen it. And there are some uh, very laudable aspects of it, actually. As, as, as a one-off TV drama, um, it is surprising it isn't better remembered. But at the same time, there are an awful lot of, you know, better programmes from the era out there. I mean, it's, it, it's definitely um, should have niche appeal, but doesn't seem to have ever had a cult following ever grow around it, not like, to say, the Tripods or even, say, Starcops has. Um, Knights of God just seems to have languished in obscurity almost. That's uh, mm. why it's always been so difficult to find find copies or even find people who've seen it. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, it's... Uh, mm. I, I, I did enjoy it, but it's... Um, but, but with some caveats, I think, some of which we'll certainly go into later on. Mm. Um, I was I enjoyed watching it. It was a good self-contained story. Um, I was quite curious about who its target demographic was meant to be because I was told it's it was classed as a children's show, which very mm. much shocks me because I wasn't told that until about a few episodes in. And I was three years old when it aired, so I definitely wasn't aware of its existence. And I don't know what age group it would have been named. I'm guessing the older end, maybe 11-year-olds. Yeah, it, in terms of it being, um, at least as uh, at least I was always aware of it being a kids show. And uh, you you said that 
TVS actually list it as a children's yes, series. Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, they list it alongside Fraggle Rock Art Attack and Pieces, <laughs> which is just a bit jarring. Cause... Uh, but yes, it is. Um, it's quite uncompromisingly brutal and mm. violent. I mean, hey, it's the 80s. That was... I mean, that's what you get. But um... so that, That's what definitely leapt out at me about it, was the, how gritty it was. Yeah. I was quite surprised. Yes. Um, it's all on film for a start. Uh, it's quite it's quite an elaborate production. It's uh, the you know the money is on the screen, as they say, with it, and it is surprisingly violent in a very realistic way. It's guns. It's it, it's not laser guns or anything. These are real guns no, is, being yeah, shot. Very, and, very uh, visceral. A lot of the violence. Yeah. And some of the main characters do get quite quite nasty ends. Mm. <laughs> Serious injuries, it's... there's always a sense of the real danger. Like when the various times when the Gervais and Julia are having to run through the countryside, and at one point one of them gets shot. I mean, it's quite brutal. Yeah, you've got stabbings, shootings, beatings, druggings. <laughs> Concentration camp. Yeah, torture. Mm-hmm. Full of kids. So, considering you know it was a Sunday tea time release, uh, it's certainly hard to imagine something quite that gritty going out at that at that time i think well i think for a start it would definitely be branded as a young adult definitely yeah. aim it at a more teen audience mm. uh, and put an advisory on it yes it is it is commendedly gritty in a way you know this was the at a time it's really it was all been all about the a-team and the rather sort of casual way that guns well, get used in that. This is the but, same era as Robocop, isn't it? So it's, well, it's kind of the way things are at that era, I suppose. Though it does contrast with what we were getting on the BBC at the time. If you think about Doctor Who at that point, it was well into the McCoy era, the Sylvester McCoy era. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's season 24 that year, isn't it? Mm. Yes, yeah, season 24. It was interesting. Yeah, I definitely remember that because I remember that was the other thing going away to Polytechnic, I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to watch Doctor Who. <laughs> so it's like every, every weekend now, once I was in Halls of Residence. Uh, and I remember at the time, uh, I think there was a kind of fandom that Knights of God, oh, look at this, it's all gritty and sort of like on, on film at a time when Doctor Who was quite brightly coloured. Yeah, yeah, a, a little bit more in some ways off off offbeat and it's more I suppose it's not really a fair comparison though because Doctor Who is a show about going off to other planets you've got um, well Andrew Morgan is the common denominator isn't he because uh, mm. he does Time and Narani and whatever you want to say about Time and Narani as a, 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 as a story um, the actual production values are really high again uh, mm. it's an example that he uh, well, both the directors of Nights of God, they know how to put the budget on screen. And yeah, Andrew Morgan shows that in Doctor Who as well. And then he does Remembrance, doesn't he? He does. I was another very good look. All of both his productions are very good looking productions. Yeah, he, he yeah. is definitely someone yeah, who knows how to put the budget on the screen. And it's an interesting idea. I mean, the, uh, the idea this is based on a civil war between the North and the South, and we are now in the aftermath of it. It's something that people talk about. I mean, right up to today, you know, people talk about this North-South divide. Some people even talk about independence for the North. So how do you feel sort of like the Knights of God as a way of addressing that idea of a modern English civil war? 
Well, I think we've got to see this through the lens of the time. I mean, this is like the era of like the uh, the miners' strike and the various political upsets of the eighties and destroying of the unions by the Thatcher government. And I imagine if you were going to extrapolate a possible future at the time, you would see as a sort of a a break between North and South initiating some sort of civil disorder. I was just thinking also, because in the late 70s, it was a bit of a a thing with the uh, punks, uh, because you had films like Jubilee, where the royal family were, you know, Britain was, fell into anarchy, and the royal family was gone and killed. So it did seem to be a theme at the time. And I actually thought when I first started watching Nights of God, that was older. I thought it was about 81 or mm-hmm. 80s. I was very surprised how late 80s it was because it just doesn't feel fitting in late 80s. Well, it's true, isn't it? But as we were saying, like with season 24 of being a contemporary production has a very colourful and offbeat feel, whereas Nights of God is very grey, gritty stark almost and mm. uh, something that is something you tend to associate more with the 70s i suppose yeah like the it's not, strikes. yeah not not the brashness of the 80s did kind of weirdly it does have a bit of a 70s vibe to it i think it's partly because it's on film yes and uh it's also it's, it's quite a rural show i was thinking about this uh watching it when i was re-watching episodes for this podcast it's it's a little shame that we never really get to see kind of the urban side of this uh the results of the civil war because i think that would have been quite interesting it's just very much a series set in there's a it's country it's farms and villages and caves and and forests by and large i think that is a a budgetary (laughs) decision Mm -hmm. i mean it makes sense if you you know um in that they say that you know there's no power and there's no Mm -hmm. there's fuel and food is scarce so cities are not going to be very pleasant places and many of them are probably you know blasted to smithereens so a lot of people will have had to have migrated out to uh, you know to, to to village life and because it's you know, by necessity, but um, but yes, I think that we're staying away from urban environments really just to save money. Moorlands are cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, That's like to, it. I'd like to see more of the society, like you said about you know urban environments and such, and you know wondering what is happening on a global scale, but also internally in Britain because. There's no diversity in the cast. Everyone is white. Everyone is Christian. So what happened to everyone else in this society? Mm, definitely. I think if you were making something similar to that today, I think you definitely it would not be hideously white for a start. The, the non-Christian communities and what happened to them would definitely be an issue. You'd have to talk about it. Mm. And, uh, I mean, the Knights apparently is... Are apparently an anti-Christian group. They are to some extent as well, even though they use churches mm. and a lot of Christian imagery in the way they present themselves. And I mean, if I have a site with the Knights of God, I think somewhere where the show perhaps deliberately pulls its punches is in the Knights themselves and the way they're presented, because they do. You you mentioned Blake Seven earlier on. And they do have a kind of a bit of a futurist, we're a slightly we're futuristic space tyrant kind of look. They've got the leather tunics and the big jack boots and the big collars. 
going on on them. They are unquestionably, they look like bad guys. So there's no sense of, oh, we started off as sort of nice guys and then we turned out to be bad. Although it's possible, it's possible perhaps that they only sort of develop this look later on. There's this sense that they've taken advantage of a situation, not that they're the cause of the civil war, but possibly they... Yeah, if I, if I remember the, 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 the timeline, the civil war was already underway when the knights rose to power, uh, probably promising a way out, you know, a way back to order, and you know that, that's always something that people will take as a as an option. But yes, I was going to raise the issue actually of the knights themselves being one of the weakest elements in that they are very poorly fleshed out. I mean, if you think of this being like some sort of holy monastic order, um, yeah, it's its doctrines, its dogma are just not laid out. Um, we mm. don't know anything much about them, and we don't know anything more about them even at the end of the show, <laughs> let alone at the beginning. It could be that the show is wanting to avoid getting into this kind of um sectarianism debate. I mean, I mean, it's still a t- I mean, sectarianism is still a touchy issue in 1980s Britain, of course. So it. Mm. it it could be that they they are painting them more as jackbooted fascists simply because they don't want to get into some sort of um, religiously driven sort of mm-hmm. further for yeah. violence and, 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 and destruction. I don't know. <laughs> I was reading that the novelization covers this more, saying about uh, uh, all the different uh, Christian branches came together in a reaction to the knights. Because they saw them as very, um, what's the word, decadent and, you know, full of all these religious trappings and securing wealth like alcohol and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. what you see is, it, other than the actual initiation ceremony, which we see a couple of times, or yeah. at least once anyway, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, other than the actual chapel that the knights have, as soon as they're out of that chapel, there is nothing religious about them. There is no fervour and piety on display. There's no... You know, they're being ruled by some sort of spiritual doctrine of any kind. That is very true, and it's like, it's a little bit. Of, it feels a little bit of a missed. Well, it was a deliberately missed opportunity. But when you've got a series that's called Knights of God, mm. uh, I think there is there is something that I, for me that's one of the sinister things about any doctrine that uses a kind of religious language in a hypocritical way to. Uh, to, I think that's always a very sinister, manipulative thing in any in any drama, right up to you know things like The Handmaiden's Tale or, or similar. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, feels... it's, a long, it's a long way from that kind of imagery. A long way. Oh yes, but obvious reasons. But it would have been quite nice, I think, if we had one or two knights. Like you say, they're not really developed. It might have been quite interesting to have had one or two knights who were kind of not a bit more, at least on the surface, reasonable. Uh, a bit like Audrey Morris's character in uh, The Day of the Daleks when he says, you weren't there, you didn't know, see how much suffering there was. That you know, the, They needed the Knights of God to kind of put things back in order and nobody really makes that kind of an argument well would you like to say a little bit on Nigel Stock 
and uh, his uh, character of brother brother Simon. He's a good character. Um, he's he's there as he comes in as the voice of reason and the warning on Hugo's intentions and mm. Maldrin, uh, as he becomes more lost in his madness, just just doesn't heed what is pretty much always really good advice. What I find strange with um, Brother Simon uh, is um, he seems rather nice, actually. If you said you were looking for for, 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 for one of a better explanation, the good Nazi, um, mm. it, it, it's, it's this character. He seems... He, 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 he's no despot. He seems just like a guy doing his job, and he seems just fit to want things to go right, to go well. Um, yeah, he, he, yeah, he's just this constant voice of reason right up to the very last episode. And, yeah, it's just a shame, but, yeah, he's never heeded. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, he probably should have been in charge. Yeah, mm. I mean, nearly everything we know about the Knights actually comes from their opponents. So yeah. it's, it's, I mean, and certainly in the case of, of, of Maldrin, he is painted as a a real monster by the rebels. But, of course, the Maldrin we meet and know throughout the show is not, He's not a moustache twirling villain at all. No. He's, he's a thoughtful, methodical, uh, you know, leader. Really, he, he he is ruthless. Yeah, but he's 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 no he's not reveling in chaos and cackling to himself or anything. Like no, that. it's Brother Hugo who's the one who's a bit of a can who's kind of wanting to kick things off all the time. Mm. I think that's established early on. I think in the first episode. Mordrin says this thing about I don't want mass reprisals after the latest riot. We are we are not butchers. Mm. And whereas Hugo's all for sticking the jackboot in as much as possible. It's a very ripe performance indeed from Julian Fellows as brother Hugo. I think from the start he's a he's a wonderfully slimy character. And I must admit, even though it's a bit on the moustache twirling. I do enjoy his most of his scenes because he oozes about the place. Mm. He is he's he very is very charming in that role. <laughs> but yeah, he has that definitely got that sociopathic quality of you know he, he is very charismatic and 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 seems to be this sort of indispensable. Uh, 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 member of the knights but of course all the time he's scheming and manipulating and it's only <laughs> when everyone around him stops becoming receptive to his manipulations Mordrin especially that yeah he, he he starts to really sort of show his true colours. Is in terms of sets in regards to Mordrin and Hugo because Mordrin the places you see tend to be quite run down, looking like they're from the 50s, old-fashioned, whereas you always seen Brother Hugo hanging out in relatively modern-looking places, like sports centers. Oh, yeah, the squash court. Yeah, he's yeah, always <laughs> at the squash court. And, you know, wherever he is, it always looks like something built in the 80s and newer and fancier compared to everywhere else. Mordrin's hanging out where it's all looking a bit like post-war. Yeah, I think that that's a clever bit of um, coding. In fact, I think whilst we're here, we must talk about John Woodvine's performance, because uh, I think Mordred has one of the most interesting character arcs uh, over the 13 episodes. Yeah, towards the end, when you see how uh, is it Brother Simon's obviously getting more and more concerned about Mordred, because you can see how he's becoming more and more, more obsessive in his behaviour patterns, and 
even though things are crumbling around him and people are in the nights are revolting against him and Mordor is just becoming very fixated on the crown and getting the crown all buffed up and stuff and, and what Gervais is doing and he's getting a bit very narrow focused to the point that in the last episode he seems delusional I don't know about the both of you but I do find and especially within, when it's involving all the intrigue within the night it's hard not to take Mordor side. I mean to be mm. honest I find myself taking Mordor side when Gervais at some point I don't know if that's down to John Woodvine who's just giving, who's managing to put sympathy, you know, making you sympathise for an unsympathetic character, or if it's, you know, in the script. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to John Woodbine. He is absolutely excellent at playing. I've only, thinking about, I think I've only ever seen him basically playing authority figures of one kind or <laughs> another over the years, and he is really good He's at it. Both, yes. Yeah. You know, whether they're decent characters like his the Doctor in American Werewolf in London, or Barking Mad Despots, such as the Marshal in Doctor Who. He's uh, he's always good, and I think a lot of it is him putting shadings. Well, I think um, that puts me in mind of the tripods, which I think you'll be talking about in a later episode. Um, but yes, mm-hmm. he plays uh, Master 468, and um, again, he manages to put an awful lot of sympathy into a a character I don't think you're supposed to sympathise for. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's, maybe it's just the magic of uh, the actor behind it. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about the leading figures in the Knights, and we should we should turn our gaze over to the Resistance and uh, our, our two young heroes in all of this. How do you feel about um, about Gervais and Julia? Well, I think there's a reason we talked about the Knights mm. first. And this is something I think both me and Rebecca identified watching it. We enjoyed the stuff with the Knights a lot more than we did with the unfolding saga of the Resistance. It was just more compelling to watch Woodvine and Fellows yes. playing off each other. And of course, then you got the wonderful Nigel Stock in the mix just to you know help things along. And mm. by comparison... Um, there's something wrong, really, with the resistance stuff. Yeah, it's just, I just, I just found myself just waiting for those scenes to be over. <laughs> well, the issue I had with it was, I mean, as someone who's seeing it only just now, it reminded me a lot of Harry Potter, particularly Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, because it's very much drawing on the chosen one trope with Gervais. And mm-hmm. the way the resistance behaves throughout drives me nuts because they behave like Dumbledore. Arthur is like Dumbledore and the resistance behave like the Order of the Phoenix throughout because they never tell Gervais anything. They're just saying, you've got to live, boy, live. And they never explain <laughs> anything. They don't tell him why he's important. They just say, this boy is important. They never tell anyone. So you've got people wanting to execute him. They don't tell him why they care yeah anyone who's going to watch this series uh, they have to prepare themselves to watch gareth thomas say live boy live over and over again (laughs) usually with his face superimposed on the screen yes translucent (laughs) yeah over and over 
<laughs> it's, it's just frustrating how they never explain anything to Gervais. They just let him get herded off to a camp and just say, you've got to live. They don't make it clear to, you know, keep your head, why he has to keep his head down or anything. So they just don't bring him into any plans. When other people are wanting to execute Gervais, Arthur doesn't explain why he's defending them and putting him on trial. You know, it doesn't explain mm. anything. It's just very frustrating. It's like that Harry Potter in the Order of the Phoenix in a way. No one's explaining anything in that case to Harry. And he's just getting more and more wound up because it's adults keeping secret from secrets from children. Mm. And it's the same in Knights of God. They're not explaining things properly to Gervais or Julia. Uh, it's a problem with that chosen one trope. That, uh, that seems to fall into a lot of adventure series. Uh, and, and like I say, there is no clear reason why the Resistance have this strategy with him, uh, why why it's necessary. All you get is Arthur just continually saying it's not the right time. <laughs> I, I don't know how he's measuring that it's not the right time. Seems really risky, isn't it? Just mm. let's, let's not keep tabs on the boy anymore. Just let him be herded up to a work camp where he might starve and die or work himself to death we don't know it just seems a very yeah. strategy i was i was going to say one thing gervais's least is not as annoying as certain chosen ones mm. especially ones whose initials have h and p in them yeah. because yeah. uh generally he makes good choices throughout mm-hmm. yes uh, he, he, he seems yeah, he doesn't do the kind of i'm going to do something that's obviously stupid <laughs> for, for, the, for the most tenuous of reasons. Now, Gervais is mostly likeable, but what I found in the first two episodes was he was very like an empty vessel, whereas Julia was the more active one. She was the one who was making plans. She made efforts to escape, whereas he just kept saying, nah, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, no, we should. Have, I know someone who knows something and we're going to go here. And he just gets carted off by other people. He gets herded off by soldiers to the work camp his parents push him up that way he gets herded by uh, john woodvine he gets herded by arthur whereas julia is making her own decisions and she's really great and an interesting character until she gets shot after which she suddenly falls into this dumb girlfriend trope where she starts shouting and screaming gervais gervais come here <laughs> where the soldiers walking around with guns risking everyone's lives and i'm like that's not inconsistent. What's happened there? Because she was a really good character till that point, but then she seems to have switched half mm. a good show. She does seem to become a, quite sub- submissive, uh, especially right towards the end, where she's kind of basically saying, oh, I can't wait to have your babies. That's a bit on the nose, I thought, <laughs> for a family show. I think there's... Um, I mean, this whole the whole show has this sort of... Um, mythological subtext running under it all and i think she, it's because she's already accepted her role mm-hmm. and that role is to you know ensure that gervais survives and becomes what his destiny is um but also there's that also plays into what else i'm sort of i kind of again it's not on screen but i'm reading into it for, for sort of looking at it through this sort of arthurian lens that it's this idea of the land and the people and the king all being connected. And, and mm. it's like at the beginning, Maldrin has all the power. He, he has command of the nation, more or less. You know, it's all going his way. And whereas Gervais is, as Rebecca says, an empty vessel. There's nothing going on with him. But as 
Gervais discovers his destiny and becomes more powerful as an individual. It's like Maldrin, it's almost like a psychic exchange where Maldrin, mm. Maldrin becomes more enfeebled, more incapable, starts making worse decisions, and Gervais just gains power over time. And at the end, it's completely reversed. Maldrin has lost everything and Gervais has gained everything. So I wonder mm. if, that's, if that is a deliberate kind of uh, subtext to it. Yeah, that's a good catch then. Yeah, I I agree. I think that is a. I think that was very deliberately done, and it is. I mean, the Arthurian myth is definitely running through all this. There's, I, I think it's something that it's in the back of a lot of British writers' minds. I think we are, we we grow up yeah. with the King Arthur myth, and it's a it's a bit of a go to. And I think about the King and the Land being one. It's quite even in 1987. I yeah. think. It's veneration of royalty and the power of royalty seems surprisingly naive. Yes, to some uh, to some extent. Yeah, uh, that'd fly quite so much today on TV. I think people would make a fuss. Yeah, it fly. It, it works in a mythological sense, but yeah. in a realistic sense, in in, a, yes. in questioning whether that would really happen. No, I mean, I really, I mean, let's say all the royal family were wiped out. First of all, most people would cheer. <laughs> but secondly, I don't know if if Prince George re-emerged or grown up, would we care? I mean, we... I don't know. I think it depends who his friends were at the time. Yeah. <laughs> it was like also, I, think, um... I could see people accepting it in a sort of, or the people have been waiting, or they've been primed. You don't really get this in the story, but they've been primed, sort of like, oh, there's going to be an uprising, and then. You'll hear a speech by someone, and, and this will be the mo. This will be the moment because it is the the whole royal thing seems more something akin to a fantasy than uh, in a in a mm. that's quite uh, gritty in other places. That whole thing about the power of royalty is it makes sense if this was a sword and sorcery type of show, and it see it does seem a little bit odd in this show. It's never overtly stated that there is anything mystical going on, I think. Uh, and that's actually tying kind of to the show's credit. It doesn't mm-hmm. take a step over that line. And you could just all, explain it all the ways that Maudrin buys into this belief in the power of, of, of the crown, something he didn't do before. Mm. And he says in an episode he didn't see it before. And you could explain it all the ways that it's Maudrin basically created his own downfall just by becoming obsessive over something he didn't need to be obsessive about watching nights god a couple of years back i went to a lecture by the biological anthropologist alice roberts uh dr alice roberts and she she mentioned uh what she called peak 80s mysticism where she talked about Mm popular culture incorporating an awful lot of mythology and she mm-hmm. cited robin of sherwood yeah. as a prime example but i will admit i was thinking knights of god as well when she was talking about that so she mm. plays the music in robin of sherwood music in oh yes yes she did yeah but um but yeah this, this it, i think it's obviously something that would have played on tv better in the 80s when people yeah. were kind of more into that i think uh, than, than mm. now. Yeah, I think Robin Hood and King Arthur and all that were very popular at that time. Been, what year was Excalibur? Um, oh, that was early. I think it was like, yeah, was like that. So it have been quite a while since that. Of course, well, yeah. um, Battlefield in Doctor Who shortly after, which is again 
connected to by the director and Christopher Bowen, who's in both, who plays the helicopter oh, yeah. pilot in uh, Knights of God, and he's Mordred in um, Battlefield. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I forgot I hadn't seen that uh, connection. Yes, I must say I do like the. Up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing we'll, I think we're going to find in this podcast series is basically Doctor Who. Is connects to everything. <laughs> it is connects to everything. It is yes. the background radiation, basically, <laughs> of British uh, science fiction to some extent, and uh, sort of like even though the idea is that's the one show we won't be covering because there's plenty of other podcasts <laughs> out there to talk about it. Inevitably, I think it's going to be a rare episode where we don't mention it at some point. Uh, but uh, yeah, it does. There was, I think, a miss. I think you're right. I think it does draw on Robin Sherwood's uh, mysticism a little bit. It's like towards the, it's probably more to the end, and that's yeah. sort of because of Mordred's uh, obsession. And of course, whilst we're talking about Arthur, there's obviously the thing that Patrick Troughton is playing Arthur, and Mordred is his son. We've come all this way, and we've only just really. Mentioned uh, Patrick Trout. We should probably say something. <laughs> we should. It's a, it's an it's um it, it is an, a a nice it's a good it's a typically it a decent Trout yeah. performance. I think it was about the first thing I'd seen him, where I was kind of looking at him as an ex Doctor in a way, rather than um, I'd seen him in plenty of other things. I think that was one of the first times I was kind of looking. Oh, that's the second Doctor. Sort of in, in in a way, and it's a decent um, performance. He played a few of these kind of well, he played quite a few of these kind of mystical wise men sort like of roles. Delights, box of delights, the superb box of delights. Uh, a couple of the Ray Harryhausen films. He pops up with a beard in that sort of sage role. And Knights of God was his last transmitted appearance on television, whereas Supergram was the last thing he filmed. Ah. <laughs> Knights of God was made in 1985 and it was delayed for transmission till 87. Yes, I, I, I'm afraid I don't know why that is, why it didn't, uh, why it was sat on the shelf for so. <laughs> Yeah, it, Troughton does have a very difficult job in that, though, because he, he has to sell this idea of Gervais being special and being saved for something important that the whole country needs him to do. And, well, you only have his word to go on for most of the show. So <laughs> you know, if he hadn't sold that well, the whole show could have just fallen flat on its face there and then. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And uh, he, I mean, given that a lot of his dialogue is pretty expositional, mm. he, um, he he does an excellent job in it. It's a, He's another person where it's always good when he comes onto a scene. Mm. You know, uh, the, the, the resistance is going to get a little bit more interesting. They don't have much of an inner life, really, the, the resistance. No. We're the resistance and we talk about being the resistance. In fact, in, in fact, uh... Gareth Thomas, you know, gives his uh, usual um, well-rounded performance, as, as you would expect from him. Um, and Don Henderson is really good. But the thing about Don Henderson is he is... Well, I'm getting more um, referencing back to Doctor Who again. Uh, Gavrock vibes from him in this performance, to be totally honest. He's not a nice guy as Collie. The character mm. is, is... Yeah, he's really quite horrible. 
I mean, this is this is this isn't a romanticized re uh, rebel leader. This this guy is um, basically just wants to shoot people. That's it. I think it's a nice touch of realism that to have him because I'm, I'm sure most resistances have people like that who are in it for the fight. And, and you know, for for half of his yeah appearance as the character, all he wants to do is hang Gervais. <laughs> he's just <laughs> how he's well, it gets him killed eventually. He becomes single mindedly obsessed with uh, getting justice for the death of oh, what was it, Nell? Was it? The the in the cottage. Yeah, Nell. Yeah, yeah. And... I thought it was for he was getting revenge for Gervais killing one of his own men. I think it was the what Nell that started him on that path, and then yeah, uh, then that's right. Then Gervais kills one uh, in 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 that sort of nighttime. I quite like that business about the he shoots someone. Even to him, it's even self defense, and then it has all these. It was nice that that had repercussions in a way that that wasn't kind of brushed under the carpet, as yes. uh, I think some shows would have done. Uh, yes, and actually, I haven't really talked to it. Gervais. Um, I think G George Winter, who plays Gervais, uh, at that time, he probably would have been best known for the TV, the Boston movie Scum. As I think he was in both the film and the TV version mm. of it, so that was kind of his major role at that point. Uh, uh, weirdly, carrying on the Arthurian in years to come, he would play the older Merlin in Merlin of the Crystal Cave oh, really? uh, series <laughs> later on. Like yeah, I said, he does a good job, even though he he's does playing a, a chosen. Does a good solid job, yeah, George Winter. Does a solid job, even though he's playing a chosen one character. He's he's not as slappable as as some chosen <laughs> I ones. Think, I think the problem is, yeah, it's not George Winter's fault at, at all. It, the character of Gervais is at times difficult to like, especially at the beginning, mm. as uh, because he is quite passive and just grumpy and a bit teenage, you know, and <laughs> there's not much to invest in there. You don't even understand why you should invest in the guy. And yeah, definitely at first Julia is by far the more um you know a, a, a forceful character. Um but later on, yeah, just certainly has he has he he gets a bit more about him, you know. I suppose it's a bit of a coming of age thing, and that he, you know, becomes more, more capable, and yeah, you know, more someone you could believe in. Mm. Well, I think that's what Arthur was wanting. They wanted Gervais to become more, I guess, come of age and be some the kind of man people would want to stand behind. You, that, that's the one motive you can see in keeping him in the dark, even though. I think it's a very poor strategy. And, yeah. Uh... yeah, there's got to be better ways <laughs> of doing that. Yes, one I, I want to throw in that I really like is the way it opens. I do like the the title music and the title that that opening with the again weirdly this very religious opening that yes. then kind of yeah. gets brushed brushed under the carpet. It starts off with this fiery cross and uh, and then a black. Helicopter rising up like an insect. This this angel, this angel of death rising up. So I, I'm sorry if I'm going a little bit florid <laughs> there, but I'm trying to convey the effect. It's a very was, good. Hey, look, we can afford a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> and and that... you know that's no that's no small thing. They were expensive things to hire by then. <laughs> no, it definitely oh, isn't a cheap looking show at all. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely. I mean, helicopters are, I think, one of the. That's when you know 
I always think of that whenever I see a helicopter in a British show. They've spent some money here. But like, I do like that opening that opening shot with the two helicopters. Two helicopters, two helicopters I believe, yeah. uh, rising up over the over the uh, the sand dunes at the start. I think it's a a lovely image. That yes. Now I must have they, uh, Richard Cooper novelized his own series into a book. Now I must confess it has been quite a few years since I have read. Uh, Knights of God, and I have long since uh, got rid of it, so I haven't been able to kind of reread it for this podcast. Uh, have 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 either of you read it? No, in fact, um, yeah. I don't think I even knew a novelization existed until probably the last um, couple of years. So I've never tracked it down. I, I did manage to. Awfully expensive. Cost you about a tenner. <laughs> yeah, because uh, there was an early. I was in. Uh, involved in an earlier project that uh, ultimately did, didn't happen but uh, involved Knights of God so I read the book as research it's it sticks pretty close to the uh, series it's probably most interesting for filling in a, a few more details about the Civil War and about what's going on elsewhere in the world mm-hmm. uh, that uh, apparently other countries some have broken off diplomatic ties, and apparently America is secretly supplying arms to the resistance, which is the sort of thing America well, yeah, uh, does with the. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd have liked more of that in the show, more of the world building stuff, because I find that very yeah, interesting. There's very broad strokes when they're when they're filling in backgrounds, and you you, you really do have to hang on the odd tidbit that. Maldrin or whoever or Arthur throws your way when you hear it because there, there isn't yeah. much that's together the intervening decades yes I think definitely if I was writing something like that similar I think I would build a bit more of that in, into the dialogue you know it's, it, cause I think there's ways you could have built it in without stopping the action yeah the Civil War we really don't know anything about it and it only seems to be the case that once the knights show up, that it turns in any way kind of genocidal. Um, I mean, I mean, I've assumed watching it that it's some sort of north-south divide that just spun out of control and ended up with a situation where the north was just basically unemployed. And... Uh, well, what I've been reading about, and it was saying in the novel, it expands on it. It says the civil war started around the year two thousand. It was because there were ten million unemployed and people getting well. well there you go. That yeah. led to the civil war. I said ah. it's just that extrapolation of where the north was in the mid eighties and thinking where will this go if it keeps on going. Well, yeah, I guess because the eighties was a very definitely time when there was that strong north south divide in terms of employment. Mm. Mm. As 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 you said, like, things like the miners' strike. Kind of, uh, and and Liverpool and the whole, uh, yeah. it did give that impression of a, a a big divide between between one end of the country and the other. I will say though, I mean, give, uh, having just talked about geography like this, but um, in the show there is a lot of weird uh, 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 bending of geography in that the show moves around all these different locations. I mean, there's you know there's the, there's the rebels in in Wales and later in Carnarvon. There's just the, the the knights based in Winchester, and then you've got supposedly the night that most of the north being wasteland, and then you've got 
London featured Canterbury, and they've got a, a training centre in I think it's supposed to be Weatherby or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you've got the, with the regions, you've got the southeast, which was renamed Anglia, and then you've got the far north of Scotland was renamed Northumbria, and then in the middle, you've got Yorkshire and Lancaster, which is called the Wastelands because that's still just not, resistance yeah, not, territory. Not, not control. And then you've got Wales, which is just Wales. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, for 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 a Britain where there's no fuel, there's precious little in the way of transportation other than walking. Uh, they get around a lot. Yeah, they do. Now you can get a, you, you can you can explain that away when they're using the helicopter, sure. But um, yeah, they, it, there is an awful lot of getting from one end of the country to the other. I mean, we're supposed to believe, you know, for instance, that Gervais and Julia were setting out to walk from somewhere where you assume is probably near Sheffield all the way down to Canterbury, which is mm. a heck of a trek on foot. And then they went to that, was it in Ireland somewhere? I don't even know where that was. Where were they going no, on? I don't remember where the island was. Lind- is it is it Lindisfarne? Is it supposed to be Lindisfarne? That would be even further north. Um, you know, I don't remember yeah. that. Well, I don't think it would be the island. It's quite a. I'm thinking out Lindisfarne because it's portrayed as quite a mystical, monkish sort of an island that they go off to. Uh, but it might not be. There's a contraction of time in the storytelling, certainly mm. when it comes to travelling about. And, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, also like the idea that um, Gervais's parents managed to get all the way up into the wastelands, you know, from you know, from Wales. Um, leaving a, a rebellion behind in Wales and somehow navigating their way through night-held territory into, into the West. <laughs> yes. Prepared to go and do it back again. And it's just like, that's, you know, unless they've got, like, transportation, we just don't see. We do see the knights have access to steam trains. They oh, yeah, the, the, the knights, well, they, they, they are, you know, they have control of the, mm, uh, you know, but... the infrastructure. So, yeah, they, they, they at least have something to get around on. The but... resistance are all on foot. Mm. So that that, mm. that for me felt a bit, it felt a little jarring at times. It is a little jarring, yeah. If, if you're looking at it, yeah, you'd probably try and fit in a bit of, oh, we've been on the road for days now. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's all it needs. Just or to give also just, a, also just to give it a sense of epicness. I mean, if you felt like mm. it had taken them weeks rather than two scenes, you know. Knights of God was transmitted. As, um, it doesn't seem to have made much impact, as we said at the start, in terms of ratings or response from people, and it's not that well remembered. It doesn't seem to have been rediscovered since then. And as far as we're aware, as I said at the start, it's uh, it's never had an official UK release, and that and that seems rather unlikely for the future, given that intellectual property rights that TBS had have since passed through several media companies since then, and uh, according to Wikipedia, at least, uh, are now owned by the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, that's an odd one. I, I imagine maybe they don't know what to do with it, because like we said at the beginning, who's this aimed at? Because it mm. says it was children's show, but it definitely wouldn't. You couldn't market you, it to children. No, now. they'd have to market it for young adults, I think. Mm. So I think if someone comes across it now, I think they might think a bit more of as a, a rip-off of the Hunger Games, to some extent. Yes. So. Yeah. But it's, it's, well, it wasn't unique territory to tread at the time, and even less so now. It's, you know, it's, it's, 
it's it, it, it's it's a journey we've seen uh, adventures take again and again. So it's I guess that might be one of the things playing against it. It's it doesn't feel very unique. Mm. Um, That's it. We've had other shows with plucky youngsters going up against. Uh, the evil overlords. It's it's part of you could say it's part of a, a rich genre to some extent, mm. particularly in children's in children's fiction. It's something that John Christopher certainly visited several times. Obviously the tripods, but uh, another novel of his he wrote called The Guardians, which this actually does remind me of Knights of God. And there's another one called the Sword his uh, Sword of the Spirits trilogy, which mm. is another set in a sort of post apocalyptic British British Isles. I'm going to go for some summings up from uh, from from both of you uh, now over over Knights of God. So yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's I'd consider it more in the speculative fiction genre uh, as a whole. It's more alternative history than what most people would call sci-fi because it's just an alternative Britain extrapolated mm. as you said earlier, Kevin, from the eighties yeah. and the way things were going. Then there was lots of this idea of the the royal family being toppled and divisions and stuff so it's just giving an alternative future really yeah there isn't much actual sci-fi going on is there it's um i mean okay they've they've got they've got video conferencing like we're doing now which wasn't <laughs> much of a thing in the 80s so certainly got that um and they've obviously got some sort of internet in that you've got prime margin computer different people's files archives and what have you there but, is, but there isn't yeah there isn't much play into that i think it's a good it's, it's a self-contained story it's only what 13 episodes you know so it's easy enough to get get through and it is watchable it's you know you do get into it but it does get frustrating at times as i said before the way people keep secrets the resistance keeps secrets and that makes gets you annoyed with the resistance whereas the knights and the uh, internal intrigues and backstabbings are more captivating and interesting <laughs> hold your attention I think, I think that's true i think i yeah the political shenanigans between mordrin and hugo yeah and the knights of god are the most entertaining parts of it uh, although it has excellent action sequences i mean every episode has a decent action sequence in it. Yeah, the the the, the, the pitched battles, the gunplay, you know, the, the actual fights. It's it's excellent. It, yeah, really, it's well choreographed. Thank you very much, Kevin and Rebecca, for joining me to break down Knights of God. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting us. And thanks to you for listening. If you have any comments or memories you'd like to share, we now have a Twitter account at Very British Futures. You can also visit my blog, garethpreston.blog, for more reviews and news. Music is by Chattery Art, and you can hear his latest album by going to chattryart.bandcamp.com. Very British Futures, produced by Gareth Preston. Goodbye until next time.